Volume 1, Chapter 20 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 20 Why hast thou lost the fresh blood in thy cheeks, and given my treasure and my rights in thee to thick-eyed musing and cursed melancholy? Henry the Fourth. From the same to the same. October 21st. What exalted heart would ever entertain even a momentary prejudice? What generous mind would ever suffer itself to be wrapped by an antipathy? Surely none. Then is my heart little exalted and my mind far from generous, for I cannot overcome the prejudice I have conceived, the antipathy I feel for one who may not deserve my aversion. That one is Laura Hilson. There is an expression constantly playing over her bold but handsome features, which I dread but cannot comprehend. There is a sinister look in her beady black eyes, which always conjure up in my thoughts the small, shining, blinking eyes of a snake. During my absence, Laura and Evelyn have become extremely intimate, and yet there can be no sympathy between them. Contrast alone can have united them, for opposites sometimes blend harmoniously. My devotion to Blanche, who has been seriously indisposed, has prevented my seeing Evelyn frequently of late. I set apart this afternoon and evening to spend with her, leaving Amy to watch my unhappy patient. Evelyn and Laura were sitting by the window, apparently engaged in some very interesting discussion. Laura was weaving a long bugled fillet for Evelyn's hair, and Evelyn was selecting the proper sized bugles and handing them to Laura as she worked. What affairs of state are you discussing? asked I, taking a seat beside them. At first neither answered, but Evelyn soon said, I am sure I can hardly explain to you what we were talking about. I believe the subject was love, or rather constancy in love, or I might better say under what circumstances love must change. I maintain, rejoined Laura, that although a woman may be united to a man, should she meet another man personally more attractive, superior in every respect to her husband, that she would insensibly be forced to acknowledge the superiority of the one and the inferiority of the other, and that it is natural for us to love best what is worthiest of our love. Your reasoning is certainly very moral, I replied, but hardly so philosophical as you may suppose. But, said Evelyn with energy, it is certainly true, Carissima, that we cannot blind our eyes to the defects even of one who may possess the imposing title of husband, and we cannot help acknowledging 
according to your argument said i purposely interrupting evelyn and addressing myself to laura conjugal fidelity would be but an empty sound and conjugal happiness an emptier one every woman would turn from the husband of her early choice the father of her children her companion through life to bestow her affections upon some highly favoured individual who had won his country's applause and the world's approbation such men as washington and lafayette would monopolize all the feminine affection in the universe the man possessed great talent high worth and peculiar fascination would instead of a blessing be a curse to mankind for he would rob every fireside of its harmony and peace analyze the nature of love and you will see your error in what does love consist what attracts two individuals to each other not as you would suppose the possession by either of those qualities which are most venerated by the world at large their hearts are united by mysterious sympathies by sweet affinities which form an invisible link between them the nature of these sympathies these incomprehensible affinities it would be almost impossible to explain but the history of the world shows that they exist and by their medium one spirit joins and blends itself with another and that union truly deserves the name of love very lucidly explained replied laura ironically but suppose there is no love in the case she added glancing at evelyn suppose a woman is united to a man whom she does not and cannot love how can she help loving some other man with whom she feels this mysterious sympathy this sweet affinity of which you so eloquently speak reason and principle forbid the commission of every crime and is not this spiritual crime of the most heinous order she could struggle against the growing passion as soon as she is conscious of its existence and if her nature is pure if she loves good better than evil she will make every sacrifice and crush in the bud a feeling or sentiment which conscience forbids her to foster oh it is very easy to talk answered laura somewhat scornfully but i never yet knew a heart that would be forced to such obedience and then as though desirous of changing the subject she rose from her seat and encircling evelyn's head with the bugled band said let me see if this fillet will become you yes you look charmingly but evelyn i must loop back these stray ringlets that as colonel damoreau says your grecian head may look more greek you know that he admires your beautiful hair gathered into one rich knot behind evelyn rather petulantly seized the hand that was looping back the long curls the ringlets fell again about her blushing face and laura was forced to desist where is ellen and your mother inquired i ellen and father are paying some visits in brooklyn and mother is undressing lila for the night replied evelyn i was about to request to see the little angel before she slept when mr merritt entered laura instantly rose laid the unfinished fillet upon the table and said it is getting quite dark 
and I really must spend this evening at home. Will you be kind enough to escort me, Mr. Merritt? Mr. Merritt politely, and I think willingly, consented. I was glad to be relieved of Laura's presence, yet I received the impression from a certain twinkling of her dark eyes that she had some object in this hasty retreat, although I could not divine what her motive could be. Evelyn and I were left together. The door had hardly closed upon Laura and Mr. Merritt when Evelyn seized both of my hands and hers and asked in an excited tone, "'Do you believe in destiny?' Do you believe in uncontrollable fate, which constrains and forces us to commit acts which we cannot bear to think upon? No, but I believe in evil spirits who arouse our bad passions, and infusing evil into our souls impel us to the commission of sinful deeds. Then there must be good spirits to guard against the evil? Undoubtedly. But if we love evil better than good, we unconsciously encourage the evil, but deprive the good of their power to influence us. But if it is our nature to give place to the evil, if we would, but cannot overcome them? If we sincerely desire to overcome, we shall and must be victorious. Oh, Evelyn, added I, looking tenderly in her face, I know that your heart is troubled, though you would willingly hide its anguish from me. When we parted six months ago, you had a presentiment that your happiness would be impaired before we met, and your fears have been realized. But wake from your trance, my sweet Evelyn. Struggle with yourself. Control yourself. Be sure of a victory if you earnestly strive to conquer an unworthy passion. Think of the child, Evelyn, with which heaven has blessed you, and let that thought inspire you with strength. Evelyn silently looked into my face, and after a long pause exclaimed, Oh, never leave me. I am afraid of myself. Why were you absent so long? If you could have only been here, if you could always be by me, could always counsel me, I might, might, she concluded her sentence with a remorseful sigh, and before I could add another word, we heard Colonel Damero's voice in the entry. I would have given all that I possess that we might have been spared his presence for half an hour longer. But it was too late. Before I could plan any mode of escape for both of us, he was at Evelyn's side. In an instant, her whole appearance changed. The bright blood mantled through her before pallid cheek. Her sadness, her fears, all vanished. His influence wrought like magic upon her spirits. She was gay, exhilarated. She forgot her own last words and mine. She was even almost forgetful of my presence. The colonel had hardly thrown himself upon an ottoman and commenced an animated conversation when the door opened again, and Laura Hilson and Mr. Merritt reappeared. Laura instantly approached the table upon which she had left her bugles, saying that she had come back for them. 
but an indescribable glance which she directed towards evelyn rendered me certain that by some unknown means laura had become aware of colonel damoreau's visit i also thought that she had some motive for making mr merritt acquainted with it at that particular moment mr merritt's careworn face was unusually clouded he greeted the colonel with cold formality and his eye rested a moment with a look of undisguisable suspicion upon evelyn to my surprise she returned his glance with one of haughty composure i might almost say of defiance her impetuous nature will not brook the slightest demonstration of tyranny i do not comprehend all this but it is evident that colonel damoreau and his frequent visits have at some time or other been a subject of discussion between the young husband and wife i find that it is so late said laura that i shall only deprive mr merritt of his tea if i take him home with me now therefore i think evelyn that i will remain do so said evelyn in a pleased tone mr merritt will accompany you whenever you like she no longer calls her husband walter then thought i mrs willard soon made her appearance and tea was served colonel damoreau evelyn and laura conversed very gaily but mr merritt was taciturn in the extreme and mrs willard devoted herself exclusively to him there was only one other person present whose silence was wholly inconsistent with her womanly prerogative that person was myself soon after tea mrs willard who caught the sound of lila's crying voice disappeared i found myself sitting at some distance from the others but beside mr merritt his ceremonious gravity his discontented countenance an unbending sternness of manner contrasted very unfavourably with colonel damoreau's ease grace and fluent brilliancy i looked from one to the other inwardly praying that evelyn's eyes might not follow the example of mine i am afraid you are not very well i said to mr merritt no my health is not quite so good as it was once and he repressed a rising sigh you have not sufficient relaxation you attend too closely to your business engagements continued i if it were not for that my own thoughts would make me commit suicide he replied suddenly aroused by my remark i hardly knew what to answer but said you must take evelyn upon some excursion to the country it would do both of you good and mrs willard can keep house in your absence how do you know that evelyn would go i am sure that she would if you requested her to accompany you and i am sure that she would not my requests have little weight with her he replied bitterly you are wrong i am certain that you will wrong her if i thought i did i should be happy almost as happy as i might be if i did not think that she hourly wronged me indeed you are very severe 
and even unjust i replied evelyn is young gay very thoughtless and very wayward she has never been used to control and she cannot submit herself but though force cannot compel her she is easily moved by gentle entreaty i have tried both but it is unmanly for me to talk to you in this manner you must not mind what i have been saying added he recovering himself i believe that i am a little out of humour some unsuccessful business transactions have disturbed me and evelyn is so beautiful so lovable you know that i love her i am sure that you do and you will ever have cause to love her in spite of her failings which are those of youth and inexperience i must leave you evelyn dear said laura rising abruptly i suppose that you will accompany us miss bolton she added turning to me i was on the point of answering in the affirmative when i caught a glimpse of mr merritt's disturbed countenance and replied no i will remain a little longer i think i can calculate upon colonel damoreau's well-known gallantry should i desire him to escort me when i wish to return colonel damoreau instantly rose with a smile upon his lips and said in an affable manner i am always at your service miss bolton i feel flattered by your request mr merritt pressed my hand as he bade me good evening and he looked the thanks which pride would never have permitted him to give utterance my stay was but short after laura's departure i bade evelyn good-night and colonel damoreau accompanied me home i was very anxious to converse with him about evelyn to make him feel that he was exerting a pernicious influence over her and perhaps undermining the happiness of her whole life but i found the task as difficult as it would have been useless i soon discovered that i had no control over the conversation which flowed into whatever channel he chose you have doubtless been acquainted with men who possessed a will so strong that it invested them with a dangerous and almost unlimited power over all weaker minds such a man is colonel damoreau but evelyn is not naturally weak-minded though her character has never been strengthened by trial and experience when i entered blanche's chamber or rather closet i found her quietly slumbering and amy wearied with watching had fallen asleep in a chair beside the bed she was roused by my entrance i am very sorry that i kept you here so late said i i have been quite contented replied amy in her usual mild voice blanche has been talking very wildly about her father and vowing vengeance upon his murderer and the destroyer of her peace she is feverish and has been quite delirious father came for me an hour ago but i begged him to permit me to remain with you all night that we may relieve each other in watching by blanche i really think that she ought not to be left alone you will share your bed with me will you not you may well imagine my answer to this kind inquiry i forced amy to lie down promising to wake her at one o'clock and after wrapping myself in a loose dress took my station beside blanche's couch 
You see in what manner I have succeeded in banishing sleep. I have passed the hours in writing to you. Amy's demeanor has undergone a complete change since her return to New York. Some painful recollections forgotten during our absence have been reawakened. Her tone and look would seem to say that she has some hidden sorrow, and yet what sorrow could she have? Her parents never opposed her most unreasonable wishes. She has wealth. Her health is restored. What can her grief be? If she loved, surely her love would be returned. But whom could she love? I am acquainted with most of her friends, and never beheld her invince any preference. I believe I did not mention to you that Blanche is only nominally to be my attendant, or rather that her services are to be mine, but that Amy chooses to defray the girl's expenses herself. I was forced to accept this offer, for I am wholly unable to support Blanche, and she is equally unable to work. I have nearly concluded this letter without one word about Mr. Elton, but I need not tell you that I have shunned him and that I intend he shall have no further opportunity of conversing with me in private. He appears to be wounded by my coldness, but its origin he of course understands. He has several times requested an interview with me, but I shall remain inexorable in my refusal. When I look at Blanche and think of her blighted existence, my heart is closed against her betrayer. One o'clock is striking, and I must wake Amy, who would not pardon me if I failed to fulfill my promise. Adieu. End of chapter 20